Jason and Bev first um, came to the vineyard oh, 25 years ago when they were fledglings. They were um, both students at London Bible College. And uh, I can't remember which of you came first. I think Bev came first and Jason came in hot pursuit. It was very evident from the day he came through the door. And uh, you saw them this morning as we laid hands on them as the new area leaders of the um, London area. And they pastor the vineyard in Sutton. They're dear friends, wonderful people. Jason is a thinker and he's a theologian as well as leading a church with the sort of mind and the sort of thinking and the sort of command of theology that we badly need. And so um, we look forward to everything you have for us. Please come and give it to us. Well, good evening, everyone. And uh, hello to all my online friends um, who are watching on the stream. And hello to my kids. Um, It's probably inappropriate, but can you make sure the lounge is clean and the kitchen (laughs) is tidy if you're watching? So, uh, yeah, Bev, uh, my wife Bev joined the vineyard. Uh, She was in the very first house group in uh, South East London when it started. And I came to church for all the right reasons. I followed the woman that I fancied and uh, just after Bev. And um, my wife has hardly changed at all in the 25 years since we've been together. Um, She's as beautiful. She looks younger every year. Um, However, the ravages of time have taken their toll on me a little more. And gravity. gravity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... uh, So much so that uh, one day our eldest daughter came into the lounge. I don't know how old she was. She must have been seven, eight, nine years old. Looked at a wedding photo. You know, kids, obviously, wedding photos stay up and they never see them. But for some reason, she decided to look at this photo. And she stood there looking at the photo. And then she turned around to Bev and said, Mummy, who's that man with you? (laughs) How little did she recognize me? Well... I want to talk tonight about the church, your church, the church. Uh, We're a church planting movement. The theme for this week is visionary leadership. My title for this evening is A Vision for the Church. Church, for me, literally saved my life. I was uh, just turning 17 years old. Um, I had a 15-year-old brother, a one-year-old brother. My father had left my mother Um, I came from a very violent, alcoholic um, background with lots of physical, emotional, and uh, other kinds of abuse. And in the midst of that, found myself looking after my family, trying to put myself through sixth form college and struggling to do that and coming close to uh, homelessness and uh, not a particularly wonderful time. And in the midst of that, the one Christian that I'm aware of in my family, an aunt, contacted a local church, and this church got in touch with my mother. And I remember thinking, I was a typical 17-year-old, I thought, you know, did all that stuff. Church is just full of hypocrites and a bunch of people that say one thing and do another. Had no idea what church was or Christianity. And I must admit, I remember my mother going to church, and she asked me to go with her. And I remember thinking, what kind of people would help people like us? And I went along deeply suspicious but intrigued and came into a school hall, and there were people singing and wearing normal clothes and, uh, you know, not saying weird things, but being quite nice and normal. And uh, I came back to the evening service. Um, It was October the 6th, 1986. I remember it vividly. I got to the end of worship. The Holy Spirit came upon me, the presence of God. I didn't know what that was. I just knew I couldn't move. They cleared most of the hall away, and there was just me in a chair at the front, 17 years old, and the youth pastor came across, a guy called Andy Hickford. And Andy said to me, he obviously twigged that something was happening. Um, And he said, are you a Christian? He was a good youth leader. Uh, I said, I don't think so. Um, He said, can I tell you what a Christian is? And I said, sure. And he explained Christianity to me. He couldn't actually find, he went off to find a journey into life. You know that little uh, booklet? He couldn't find one. We laugh about this now. He came back to me and said, I guess I'll have to explain it in my own words, because he didn't, back then, didn't realize that you were allowed to do that. Um, So, uh, and this is how I was introduced to Christianity at the age of 17. He said to me, 
Jason, if you become a Christian, your life may become more difficult. And I remember thinking, that's the first words out of his mouth. I remember thinking, you have no idea how difficult my life already is. It was a bit of hard sell. But then he carried on and said, but if you become a Christian, I can promise you, you will never have a day without something to live for, something to die for, and meaning, adventure, and purpose. Do you want to go away and think about it? That was it. That was how the gospel was presented to me. And I thought, I want that. So we prayed there, and then I went home. I remember waking up in the morning. Uh, Nobody had to tell me that Jesus was Lord of my life. I just knew when I woke up, I was determined that I was going to uh, have a career in science, then become a lawyer and a barrister and a politician and ultimately prime minister. Those were my humble um, aspirations. (laughs) to change the world. Um, And I think one of the reasons I became a Christian was because Jesus intervened to spare Great Britain having me in politics. That was... uh, So, uh, and I still remember waking up and saying, Jesus, what do you want with my life? I just knew that my life was his. And very clearly got the impression it wasn't politics. And from that moment, really wanted to help other people find what I had discovered. And uh, so when I think of church, church did save my life. It saved me from a background of violence and alcohol abuse. It gave me a hope and a purpose and a future. First time I went to a small group and people prayed for me and laid hands on me, my only experience of having, having hands laid on me were playing rugby, you know, being in a scrum, maybe some physical contact with the opposite sex if I was fortunate, or a beating from my mother. So having someone lay that, I remember the first time in small group, someone put their hand on me and I flinched, an involuntary reaction. And the first time someone prayed Jeremiah 29 over me, God had a plan to bless me and prosper me. Oh, amazing. And uh, anyway, so I say church saved my life. When I think of church, my word associations would be family, kingdom, rescue, redemption. I'm 43 years old now, um, so it would also include people, headaches, pain, suffering, (laughs) trials, tribulations, um, and all the other things that go with church. But we're a church planting movement. We're called and commissioned to plant churches. And yet in the UK at the moment, we live at a time when people have the least interest in church, possibly, that we can remember. We also live at a time when one of the fastest growing groups in our country are Christians who have given up with church. The number of times I've heard or seen on blogs or tweets or, I'm done with church, just done with it. How do we then talk confidently about church and plant churches, if that's the context that we're facing? It's one of the things I want us to talk about tonight. And some of us, as soon as I start to talk about being confident about the church and in the church, um, by the way, I did a blog post once and I called it I Love Church. It got the most comments ever and the most vitriolic comments ever. People immediately said to me, you have no idea what church did to me. How could you write something like this? Instant, the pain that people have about church under the surface. And my love of the church is not a naive sentimentalism. It's a very real one, and I do understand from friends some of the pains about church. But we might become uneasy to start talking about the church confidently, because surely our focus is Jesus, the gospel, the kingdom. Once we start to talk about church, church equals an institution, and we live in a culture and society completely allergic to anything organized and institutional. Churches hurt people. Church. But I want us to talk confidently about church tonight. One of the difficulties we've had, we've almost had three kinds of conversions. Many of you will have have heard this before. What we've often done is, in ever-decreasing circles, inviting people to convert to follow Jesus. Then we explain to them there's this thing called the church. And then there's a thing where we do mission. And ever-decreasing numbers of people engage in those processes. It's one of the things I've appreciated about the vineyard. I remember when I first joined early on. Those things, isn't it? When you first join and then you hear those things that just stay with you and change your life. And I remember hearing John saying, you know, we're about Christ, his church, and his cause. All three things, inseparable. Jesus has a church through which he has a cause. It all goes together, inseparable and mixed. 
there's an evangelical impetus that we have from our tradition as evangelicals. And it's, one of them is this, to be in the world but not too much of it. Have you heard that? We want to be in the world but not too much of it. One of the things evangelicals have a very bad reputation for is being far too much in the world at the moment. Far too at home. This is our dream and aspiration for life. Another evangelical impetus, I think, is this one. To be in the church, but not too much in it. It's a very evangelical thing. Our family tradition is to be, to love the world, but be suspicious of it. To love the church, but be suspicious of it too. In the world, but not of it. In the church, but not too much in it. And maybe for many people, the pendulum has swung. We are too much, our brothers and sisters that we might know, and maybe even ourselves have been there, too much in the world and not enough in the church. And that's the sort of space I'm wanting for us to uh, look at tonight. So the outline for this evening, what I want to go through with you is to do three things. First one is I want to talk, I'm going to be talking about story and the power of story this evening for us to understand the church better. Um, First thing we're going to do is look at the stories that you and I live by. Rich touched on that this morning, talking about vision and how we anticipate the future. So the first thing I'm going to explore with you is the stories we live by. The second thing I'm going to talk about is share with you is a story that might help us to understand the church better and deal with some of the problems and challenges that we face. And the last thing we'll do is look at a story for planting churches, um, a story from Scripture that might help us in particular in the vineyard as we plant. So I hope while we do that, we'll be addressing some of the big challenges and issues surfaced from church planting. And I'm going to tell lots of my stories tonight, and I'm going to tell lots of my experiences as a church planter and some of the challenges I've had. And I'm sure we'll have those in common. And my hope and outcome is that we'll leave tonight with a better understanding of church, some more confidence in the church, and a vision for being in and planting churches. Um, Let's talk about... uh, Stories, the power of stories. Excuse me a second. We live in stories, metaphors, not theories. When you and I are dead, actually, how many of you have been to, uh, stupid question, who's been to a funeral? Of course you've been to a funeral. When you go to a funeral, people don't say, oh, here's a list of all the things that Uncle Bob believed. Here's a list of all the theories that Aunt Jill subscribed to. What people do is they tell stories, don't they? I I remember the time when. One of our next-door neighbors died a couple of years ago, one of the most lovely, godly men I knew, and he wasn't a Christian, and we were devastated. His funeral was packed, and it was story after story after story after story of his acts of kindness to other people. Not what he believed, not his politics, not anything. At the end of our lives, we're reduced to the stories that we have lived and that we've made in our relationships. There's a a Catholic theologian called um, von Balthasar. Isn't that a cool name for a theologian? See, I fancy myself as a theologian, but the name Clark is not very (laughs) glamorous. I think I should have changed my name by Deepol. Jason von Balthasar would have been uh, been easier for domain names, that's for sure. But... um, And uh, von Balthasar is a is a theologian, genius theologian, he came up with this concept of the theodramatic and said one of the ways for us to understand the authority of scripture, how scripture has a role for us, is as a story. Uh, this is something, by the way, this will sound familiar if you've read N.T. Wright. This is where N.T. Wright got some of his thinking on this. That we, that the gospel, scripture is like a Hamlet play. There are characters and received stories and traditions, but we're in the final act and the bit of that is not the, that script is not available to us, but we have to improvise. So it has to be Hamlet based around the other characters previously that have come before us. And N.T. Wright picks up in this in a lot of his writing. Uh, and what Tom Wright does in his sketch of scripture, he uses these themes. He says one of the ways for us to understand the story of scripture and God and what he's done with us is these big themes of creation, a fall, falling out of relationship with God, what God does with the people of Israel that culminates in the arrival of Jesus and then into the New Testament church and us. And Tom Wright picks this theme up and says, what you and I are doing is we're improvising a story. 
there's freedom and flexibility about what we do in many ways, but our story is the retelling of those previous stories and themes that have come before us. Does that make sense? Um, what does that might maybe mean for us? Well, one of the ways that we might understand church is that church is the retelling and living of that story, the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ, improvising and recapitulating. I love the word recapitulation. Any of you do music? I remember when I, I did a lot of music when I was uh, younger at school and recapitulation, you know, something coming around to something and you'd recapitulate, you'd do it again and again. Um, one of the other ways we might understand recapitulation or this motif is um, incidental music that's played in programs. Do you all like Downton Abbey? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah Downton Abbey's great. And, uh, and I, love, I, mean, I love the music in it. And uh, we had some friends in our church and he used to produce, not for Downton Abbey, but he would produce background music for TV series. And he walked me through in his home studio once all the different sounds that they had for different actors in the TV program and how they would insert them into the sound stage. And some of you, you know when you watch a movie when the creepy music's on? And, but Downton Abbey's got some very strong motifs when the dog arrives and it's a happy day. There's a certain theme that happens. There's the main Downton Abbey theme tune woven through it. And in a way, maybe that's how we might understand the retelling of the Christian story, that you and I have our own tune, but if people were to listen to us, they would pick out different motifs and sounds and tunes from, oh, that sounds like creation, that's the fall, that's Jesus, that's, that's the king returning. It's an old adage for us in the vineyard, isn't it? If uh, you want to know what our story is, show me your bank account and show me your diary. Our bank accounts and our diaries reveal what we think life is about and the investments that we've made for our story. Or the one I call the dinner party test. When people get together and have a meal together. What do we talk about most naturally with one another? Easily, confidently, comfortably. Well, we're English, so we talk about the weather, don't we? When we got beyond the weather, what do we talk about? We might talk about our cars, our jobs, our holidays, our work, our bosses. Uh, There are certain things that we talk about that... Uh, the warp and the weave of life, our stories. Maybe beyond having a meal, what do we get prayer for? See, what you and I pray for reveals often the most our deepest understandings and assessments of life and what we think is important. What we get prayer for is what we're organizing our life around. We all improvise our life around our expectations, our longings, our desires. And yet, Scripture tells us that you and I have a problem when it comes to our improvising a story and improvising the story of God, a big problem. And uh, Augustine, a very famous theologian early on in the life of the church, uh, about 1,600 years ago, said, one of the problems that you and I have is that we are desiring creatures. We desire stuff, things, experiences. In fact, our biggest problem is we desire desire itself. Quite a profound statement. It goes like this. How many of you really look forward to getting a present, and then when you get it, it's not as good as having looked forward to getting it? Or how many of you with your kids, they get it and it's discarded in a split second? Something they've been going on about for weeks, months. See, we love desiring things as desiring creatures. And Augustine reminds us, he gets this from, obviously from Scripture and the, the early church does, that what happens is we instrumentalize God. Well, that means that we use God. We use God as a means to an end. God is a resource to get us other things that we want or we desire. So back again to how do we pray? What do we ask God for? What we ask God for is usually what we desire and what we've set our hearts on. Now, in the vineyard, we have this instinct about worship being a way of life, don't we? We talk about worship as a lifestyle. You've heard that? One of the things we could do is maybe turn that phrase around and say, actually, life itself is worship. Every human being who has ever lived and will ever live worships. Worship is worship. The organization of our attention our investments for life, our imaginations, our hopes, our aspirations, our relationships, everything that we do is worship around what we think life is about. 
And Christian worship is the organization of our life as a lifestyle around Jesus and the kingdom. So another suggestion I've got early on here this evening. This is the hard bit, by the way. I'm pushing you a bit. Is that all right? We'll get to some more stories in a minute. Church is the place where we fund the deepest resources, find the deepest resources, and fund our lives with the deepest resources through worship. I think the scandal of Christianity is not saying to people, you're going to hell unless you become a Christian. The scandal of Christianity is saying to one another and to our friends, you are not free to be whoever you want to be. You will never ever make a life and be fulfilled and find out who you are in this life and your hopes for the next on your own. You will only ever do that in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, that is shocking to say to our culture and our society. It's my life. I'll damn well do what I want with it. It, I'll do what I want where I want, how I want And Christians are supposed to say, we've discovered something else. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I don't know who I am without Christ. Now, um, because of my background and my general temperament, I've had lots of therapy over the years and um, probably will need much more therapy for the rest of my life. Um, And I was looking for a therapist recently, and I'll tell you why in a minute. And, uh, And I wanted a Christian therapist. And the therapist said to me, why is it, why is it important, sorry, no, I went to see the therapist. The therapist said, wouldn't you rather have a Christian therapist? And I said, no, I don't want a Christian therapist. Like, you know, when you go see a car mechanic or an accountant, you want to keep business in the family. I said, I want a good accountant. I want a good car mechanic. I want a good brain surgeon if I ever need one. I want a good therapist. If they're a Christian, that's a bonus. But I did talk through my therapist. I said, there's something you need to understand whilst we talk about who I am and my life and what I'm doing. I said, you need to understand... I am trying to become like someone else. I am trying to lose my identity and become someone else. <laughs> and they gave me a look. For any of you, you know, you can imagine what they think. thinking. said, and you probably call that extreme codependency and mental illness. I call it being a Christian. If you can cope with that, then I can work with you. In other words, what I was saying was, as I retell my story, it's what therapy is, isn't it? You retell your story. As I retell my story with you, I don't want you helping me to retell my story so that I find myself outside of Jesus. So that I find myself as some self-creating human being who can be whatever he chooses to be. I want to lose myself completely in Jesus. That's my biggest problem. I find it so difficult to do that. So... We all live by stories. I want to talk second thing out of the three things. is about stories for church. I mentioned N.T. Wright, and he has this theme of creation, fall, Israel, Jesus. Um, someone who's much smarter than me, a guy called Oliver O'Donovan, wonderful Christian ethicist Evan, uh, and theologian, internationally renowned and an evangelical Christian, and supervised James's PhD, um, James Mumford. Um, Oliver Donovan says, one of the ways that we can read the story of Jesus is through four different things. Advent, passion, restoration, exaltation. We're going to take these four things. Advent is the coming of God. God is here. He's not far away. He's present with us. Passion is the judgment of God upon the world and the suffering that he enters into with us. Restoration is when he brings new identity to us and then... Exaltation, when he is exalted as king. Four things from the life and death of Jesus that we are called to learn and live and improvise, to have a Jesus-shaped life. Now, one of the most important things in my life at the minute is my motorbike. Very, very important. My life has a very motorbike-shaped year to it. I know with my friends that the Isle of Man TT is in May every year. I know that the MotoGP at Silverstone is at the end of June every year. When I get together with my motorbike friends, as we imagine our year, when we're having motorbike stories, our year is full of all the experiences that we're going to have around our motorbikes. Motorbike shaped to our year. 
Maybe it's swimming for you, football, rugby, or strictly come dancing. (laughs) Or for those of you who need real help and therapy, big brother. (laughs) Sorry, Debbie. Um, You see, our life has a shape and a pattern to it, doesn't it? Around what's of interest to us. And if Jesus is of interest to us, the story of Jesus should be the shape of our very life, our very year, our very story. So what story are we retelling and reliving? And the church is called between the ascension of Jesus, when Jesus ascends into heaven, and before his parousia, his return. That's where the church exists. And the church, as the body of Christ, is to relive and retell the story of Christ's life, death, and resurrection until he returns for his people. So if we take those four things and get a bit more practical around church and church planting. Advent. The church is a gathered community. Church is not one decision amongst many decisions that we make, but I want to suggest that the church is the ultimate decision that you and I could ever make that should bring order to every other relationship we have. There's an audacious claim for the church. What do I mean? Church does not, Christians through history have worked very hard on this, church does not eradicate all your other relationships. That's called a cult. When the church says, you don't need your family anymore, we are your family, that's a cult. But on the other side, we have another problem where church has become about the dispensing of religious goods and services. My family is my cult that I worship. And the church is there to help my family. See, wherever we are, we often place a cult somewhere. Our sport is a cult. Our work is a cult. That organizes all of our life. But church is supposed to foster an understanding of all our relationships. I want to tell a story about my eldest daughter. She's probably watching. Um, so, hi. Hi, Anna. The lounge is clean. Great. She's on uh, instant messaging with Bev. My... Uh, One of the privileges of getting older is having your children become your heroes and input into your life. My uh, eldest daughter is a hero of mine. All my kids are, but I'll tell a story about my daughter. It's in a a chapter in a book that I wrote, so I've got a permission to tell this story. Um, She was very involved in dance, doing lots of it, and eventually her dance class switched to a Sunday morning. So never mind being a pastor as a parent, that first experience of... You know, we all go to church together. This is our story as a family. How is this going to work with her and her dance? And we didn't want to do two things. One where we said, well, I'm the pastor. What will this look like in church? If you're not there, you better get your butt to church. That wouldn't work. But also didn't want to do that thing, oh, it's all right. We'll just leave it up to you and it will sort itself out kind of thing. Because we know that doesn't work. So instead, we prayed and we had conversations with her, and it looked like she was going to do this dance class, wouldn't be around with church for us, but we talked about youth and what that might mean and other stuff. But then she, uh, and it, sorry, I'm retelling a story, so it's probably greatly exaggerated, um, but uh, this is what I remember. Goes to a dance teacher. A dance teacher says, Anna, are you switching to the Sunday morning class? And Anna said, well, thinking about it, but my family and I, we've got church on Sundays. Her dance teacher, without any hesitation, Anna came home and she was very cross and very angry. She said, you'll never guess what my dance teacher said. Apparently, her dance teacher, without any hesitation, had said, Anna, that's ridiculous. You can pray to God on your own in your bedroom. You don't need church to be a Christian. And Anna, what you need to understand is dance is a way of life. It it has a story and a narrative and grammar and texture and you have to practice it and do it with other people so my daughter's telling me the story you see the irony here and then she was just telling the story and then she looked at me and said dad isn't isn't that what christianity is you see this well-meaning secular dance teacher had no hesitation invading my daughter's most important story and thinking that she could tell her how to live her story And bring another story in. Voluntarism. See, 
Voluntarism was the ability for people to choose their faith. Evangelicalism was birthed in voluntarism, the ability to choose where you worshipped and with whom you worshipped and how. And 300 years on, one of the greatest things for evangelicals now is to choose not to worship. We exercise that choice, not to, to not be in church, around church. One of the most common stories that I hear from some of my friends and people that we were at seminar, uh, Bible college with doing, doing theology is, thank God I'm not in another church meeting. That's the story of many Christians' lives. There are no neutral spaces. This is what Advent tells us. God, this is his world. He comes to us. He, in, he invades it. He is with us. There's no place that's neutral. So anytime so, I get a little bit twitchy when every time says, well, we can just meet in Starbucks. It's a nice neutral space. I can meet God on the golf course. I don't need church. You ever heard those kinds of sentiments? Um, problem is Starbucks is not a neutral place, is it? What does Starbucks exist for? The well-being of humans in society? As far as I'm aware, Starbucks exists for one purpose and one purpose alone. And what is it? To make money. The coffee's incidental, by the way. If they could make as much money doing something else, they'd probably do something else. So one of the things that Advent tells us is that God comes to his people as a, re- as a reality and a social space. That what you and I do on Sundays is already deeply religious. Deeply. Whether it's with our family, our leisure, we are usually, most of us in our weekends, unless we're working, and even then that's part of our story, are living out our deepest stories. One of the things that we've done is that I think we've made an idol of our families. Christianity magazine, the American Christianity magazine, had an interesting interview with a pastor who was close to retiring talking to his grandson. And he said one of the things he realized was, he said, for his generation, everything was sacrificed for ministry. But talking to his grandson, nothing could be sacrificed for ministry anymore. The transition and changes around where we think churches and family and society. Um, One of the things that Bev and I in this Advent space, trying to think of a story here, when our youngest daughter was born, we decided that having a child wouldn't be a disability. Uh, And by that, I mean, we had some friends who, when they had her baby born, it was like it was, they had to, it never happened to any other human being and they disappear for years um, under nappies and, you know, times when babies have to be fed and all those things. Um, And we thought, our daughter's going to fit into our story, our life. She was one week old and we put her in a little, what was it, Bev? Thing? No, those little things you zip them up in. What are they called? Straight jacket? <laughs> a baby, a baby grow. And we, would take, we took her to house group. And she got passed around. And when we worshipped, she was put on the floor. And she's been in an environment of worship and ministry. We figured when she needs to be fed, we'll feed her. But she'll fit around what we're doing. And I do wonder if she would be half the godly woman that she is with a love of Jesus and worship and ministry and hearing from God, if she had been cosseted away safely around a different story for family. Our youngest daughter, Leah, um, has special need, autistic spectrum disorder and a few other things. And um, she does fantastically well. And one of the things that our family psychologist said to us about our daughter was, she said, there's something very different about your daughter and I think it's to do with your church. And what the psychologist could see was, here was a child who, on the autistic spectrum, should find socialising difficult in lots of ways, and Leah does. But her ability to have friendships and relationships, her identity, her confidence, had, she could see it had a different shape to it. And one of the things we know that is, is through being involved in the church. And again, passing her around. You know that thing on a Sunday, you pass your kid around, you go, where's my baby gone? (laughs) Just gone off having a story and an adventure with a whole bunch of other people. People of God. I want to talk about suffering. This is the big bit I want to mention this evening. Advent, passion. One of my favorite Bible verses is Galatians 2 verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Martin Luther in the Reformation said, one of the problems with Christians are they have no theologia crucis and they love a theologia gloria. And what that means is they have no theology of the cross, but they have a theology of glory. In other words, it goes like this. Martin Luther observed that Christians love Easter Sunday. They love the resurrection and they love Jesus doing things for them. But they're not so keen on Good Friday as an experience in their life and their faith. Quite glad that Jesus went there, but want to skip past it straight to Easter Sunday. And Martin Luther reminds us, the scripture tells us that the way that you and I get to resurrection is through Good Friday. The ultimate way that you and I will get to resurrection is through going through Good Friday itself. Through death. We're invited to practice dying daily. It's what baptism is a symbol of, isn't it? To choose death. Um, I remember here, I'm sure I heard John Wimber say this many, many years ago, saying, I died to myself yesterday, but when I went to bed and woke up in the morning, I come back to life again. You remember hearing him say that? And I have to do it again and again and again. That's why Jesus says we're supposed to pick up our cross Daily, practice death and resurrection. Daily. We are called and have the privilege of coming to Christ and choosing to die now to practice death and experience resurrection in small ways and as we get older in bigger and bigger ways so that one day we're ready for the big one when it happens. That when we breathe our last and wake up in eternity, we're not going, that was a surprise. But we're going, man. This was everything I ever experienced already and more. But what shape and story do our evenings and weekends, our emotions, our thoughts, our investments take? And too often, our lives and our story are about avoiding Good Friday and getting to Easter Sunday. Endlessly wanting to escape with TV or holidays and many good things of life. The quest for the Garden of Eden instead of Golgotha. I sometimes think that for people living in London... When I have conversations with them, it always seems like they're passing through. They're just working there to make enough money so they can go and live somewhere that looks like somewhere they were on holiday before. Because that's what the story of life is, to retire early, to live by the sea. I'm amazed at the number of Christians that God seems to have called to live by the sea. Is there room in the world for all these Christians to live by the beach? One of the things, again, that we have in the vineyard is the now and not yet of the kingdom. Understanding why God sometimes heals and doesn't. And we have that as our theology. And that's what's called our eschatology. But that covers far more the now and not yet than just healing. It covers what we get to experience in life. It covers why some of us will have great marriages and some of us will have terrible ones. Some of us will live by the beach and most of us will live in awful places, less like the beach. The now and not yet. When you go home tonight and you look at your kitchen and go, it's the now and not yet. (laughs) Maybe your Good Friday is your bathroom. I don't know. (laughs) But we are called first and foremost to Golgotha, to the dung heap of the world, where our Saviour died, to stand at the foot of his cross. When Jesus says, pick up your cross daily, he's not saying pick up something and put it on and carry it to work so everybody knows. He's saying, go to the crappiest place in your life and everywhere you live. Take yourself there. Take me there. I will be there. It's one of the reasons I think Paul says in the book in Philippians, I love this phrase, Paul says, I want to make up in my own body the sufferings of Christ as if somehow to attain to the resurrection. We get a little bit twitchy sometimes. I think that's, oh, is Paul trying to earn his, earn his salvation by good works? No, Paul's saying, I want, to, I want to literally experience in my body the suffering of Jesus so that I can practice resurrection. There are some types of suffering. I'm going to mention some of the prevalent ones that we might bump into in church planting. How about this one? I think there's a real cost 
for you and I as church leaders when we are trying to serve in our societies in the Western world at this time in history. Um, You know, when Paul says that we bear in our bodies the sufferings of Christ, what does that look like in Nottingham? I don't think most of the Christians here are being whipped and facing torture. That's not what we face in our bodies, the sufferings of Christ. So what, what's, the, what's analogous for us in our context and culture, the sufferings that we might face serving Christ? I think it's tiredness. How many of you as church leaders have been tired doing ministry? How many of you have had things with your body go wrong because you have been giving them in service to Jesus Christ? And how many well-meaning people have told you there's something wrong and ministry shouldn't be like that? Well, maybe you are doing too much, but maybe you're bearing in your body the sufferings of Christ. I suffer from tension headaches, chronic tension headaches all the time. And I've had chiropractic stuff and massage and treatments and I've been told, you know, I need to sit on a proper chair and relax. And, and I've been told, Jesse, you need to change your job completely, do something else, or you're going to have these headaches for the rest of your life Look, doing what you do. And I take comfort sometimes with the most crippling tension headaches I have. And I say, well, Lord, if this is all I have to suffer to try and bring you to others, so be it. I could be like Paul. And perhaps not be able to write because my hands have been destroyed from tent making or rocks that have been thrown at me. How many of Paul's friends said to him, Paul, you really should get a different career than this Christian ministry. It's not good for your health. Now, we do need to discern the difference between the cross of Christ and our own crosses that we take ourselves to. But maybe there is a suffering there. There's a quote by Hunter um, S. Thompson, I love, it says this, Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside into a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, Wow, what a ride. <laughs> and I think that's somewhat positive. Paul says, I want to make up of my own bodies the sufferings of Christ. Three times in the New Testament, uh, uh, Philippians 1, Timothy, and somewhere else I can't remember, Paul says, I am being poured out like a drink offering on your service. I want it all used up, all gone. Another suffering we might face, trying to live in consumer Western society. Sometimes we can be accused, you ever get this, oh, we're some of the richest people who've ever lived in the history of the world. You ever heard that? And has that ever helped you to live better? (laughs) Never does. doesn't matter how much you've got. It's never enough. And I am constantly shocked at the amount of time and money. I am constantly dismayed at the pieces of paper that come through my door on a daily basis that I have to attend to just to keep my household going. I say, Jesus, do you know what a direct debit is? How, how could he cope? The disciples had it easy. They didn't have thousands of emails coming through every month. The pressure from the life that we live, and we can maybe change our lifestyles and do some things. Yeah, we can do all of those, but there is this pressure. Again, I'm going to mention my teenage daughter. Some of us are, are fearful of the demands of the Christian life. Oh, that's too much for people. But I look what my teenage daughter does to her body as an ascetic around aesthetics. The disciplines that she has to look good takes her two hours every morning. Two hours. I'm told that's a conservative amount of time for a woman to look good. But joking aside, some of you think about your daughters. Some of you think about other young girls you know. The things that women have to do to their bodies to fit into our society, to be beautiful and accepted. The British um, census and survey around uh, attitudes that came out recently, big government survey, some shocking statistics in there. I found them shocking. And it said that children who were brought up with no connection to any faith, never mind Christianity, 97% of them would never practice any form of faith for the rest of their lives. So one of the biggest lies that you might ever hear is this. Well, my kids can make their minds up later on about faith. It's a lie from the pit of hell itself. 
Because what happens is, if we bring up our children without living the story of Jesus with us, they will learn a different story and spend the rest of their lives living that story. It's a statistical fact, a shocking fact. How many of us in church planting, we lose our parents and kids to sports and clubs, to stories? And it's a suffering, isn't it? How do we deal with that? When so easy, the family is something we can't get to. When the idea that, does God really have the best for our kids? How do we have those conversations? There's a real suffering. Then we've got social justice and ill health and stuff that maybe we're a bit better at. But the sociologist David Martin would trace something that happens. And I've seen this. I've got four um, half-brothers who are half-Filipino. And I got to speak to one of them. And uh, he got a young girl pregnant and got married. And, and uh, Sorry, this sociologist, David Martins, talked about Brazilian churches in London and says, evangelical churches are the most amazing place for people who are immigrants who can't speak a language because they teach people the language, they do social justice, they help them with welfare, they get them into work. Evangelical Christians are still at the forefront of helping people around the world with faith. But he also traced this other thing that happens, that once people become successful and get jobs... They leave their faith behind. And I remember asking my brother, this evangelical church where he'd become a Christian in, how it was helping him. And I thought, I'll ask him. I said, what happens to the people who've been around a while who you know, are doing well in life? He says, oh, we don't really see them very often. Last suffering. How about living our faith in public and sharing our faith in public? Well, we don't want to upset our friends, our boss, our parents. The number of people that say to me over the years, I'll say, see you on Sunday. No, you won't. My parents are down. Why is that? Oh, they get really upset if I go to church. I'm like, why? Because if my friends had said, my parents are down, and all mum and dad stay there, I'm just going out to play football or go for a swim or go for a run, or that's all fine. But we then offend and upset our relatives and family members by our life having a Christian shape to it. Last thing on suffering. I want to tell you a story about my parents. I'm wondered whether to tell this story because in some ways it's so big and so intense and you might not relate to it, but it's the only biggest story I've got about suffering. My... Uh, mother committed suicide just over a year ago. Um, she ended up on a life support machine. My brothers and I had to switch off our life support machine, wait three days for her to die. Um, she ended her life in the way that I had expected uh, with a letter to me and my other brothers had ones as well, basically saying, you're a terrible son and I'm doing this because you amount to nothing and you've made my life as miserable as it is. Um, reaching out with her last breath to try and hurt her children. And I remember standing at the bottom of her bed and uh, something welled up inside me, a prayer. And I remember saying, Lord, is your cross big enough for this? It wasn't a massively theological question. Well, it is in some ways. It was the question of a Christian to his heavenly father saying, is your cross big enough for this, Jesus? And I felt like he whispered to me, yes. Six months later, my father took his own life. Um, Estranged from my mother for 20 years in a bigamous relationship, an alcoholic who went on, I'd idolized him, but he went on to destroy and physically abuse his second family. And his last communication to me before uh, he took his life was, to email me and tell me what an awful son I was. He was not proud of me. I'd amounted to nothing. And again, I remember thinking, Lord, is your cross big enough for this? In some ways, I've had many years to get used to that for my parents. But how, how do you begin to deal with? I, had a, I was thinking about this the other day. I don't think my mother ever knew this. I don't think I've even told Bev this. There's so many little stories packed away in my life. I used to long and look forward to my father coming home. He worked abroad. I had football. You remember those football cards? They still do them for football clubs, trading cards. I would, three months before he came back, I would put the equivalent number of cards to the number of days until he returned on my wall. And my mother would just think I was putting my cards up. And what she didn't notice was every day I would take one card away. 
It was to help me cope and look at and count down to his return. And as much as I loved him, I still wonder how broken do two human beings have to be that the only way they know how to relate to their children is to try and blame them for the taking of their lives. And I'll be honest with you, I thought I'd had an experience of Golgotha, but until this happened, I didn't realize how far death and destruction goes. And I found that place has not been very pleasant or not, and not very nice. First six months of last year, I literally dragged myself out of bed, went through the motions, prayed. I would sometimes in worship, you know the song, Your Love Never Fails, Never Runs Out on Me? I found myself singing that um, early on last year, and the words just came out of my mouth without me even knowing it. I said, your love always fails, your love has given up, your love has run out on me. How far does the cross go into your life? How far down does it really, really go? What's off limits to Jesus at the minute? Because you see, I knew I was not going to get through this if I kept Jesus off limits to that. No way. This was going to take over my life and destroy me. And one of the hardest things I had to do was to go to face this and go to the cross and pray with friends and cry tears and express my grief. But I guess I want to ask you this evening, how far does the cross go in your life? Is there a relationship that's off limits, a conflict that you will not resolve, that you will not let the cross of Jesus Christ go to because it's not big enough to deal with it? Last thing, restoration. The church enters into a new way of living. So Advent, suffering, restoration. We have the household codes in the New Testament, an experience of Jesus as king. One of the ways that I know that Jesus exists is this. I travel a lot. When my kids were younger, they'd all come to the airport to greet me. And you know airports are the happiest of places and the saddest of places, aren't they? And uh, I remember one time, I can't remember which country I'd come back from, I remember I came out at Heathrow and there's all the people lined up and my beautiful wife's down the end and, I, and at the top of their voices, my three, three kids go to me, Daddy, 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 Daddy. And everyone turns around and looks at them and they run in slow motion. <laughs> And I kneel down, they throw their arms around me, and everybody's going, oh. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit came on me, and in my heart I'm saying, I know my Redeemer lives. Family. As I get older and make my wife's life increasingly miserable, because that's what husbands do. (laughs) Sorry, we realize how often we make our wives' lives miserable. With that death and destruction and everything, you know, I just thought I was a good catch and she did well getting me. (laughs) I found myself praying this last year that she is the most wonderful consolation and gift of redemption in my life. And church has been my family You are my family. All the friends who are tweeting me and texting me tonight saying, we're praying for you and love you. And, you know, I'm just reminded again, the family that I have in Jesus. And my children know not the experience that I had. Theirs in Christ is completely different and has a Jesus shape to it. At my mother's funeral, I need to wrap up. My mother started going to church again just before she died, and I went to her funeral, and a few friends said to me, it must be really difficult for you at your mother's funeral, hearing all these people say nice things about this woman, the way she systematically abused you and hurt you. And I said to them, no, not at all. It was difficult. But the elder of the church leading the funeral was sensitive and made some jokes about how God might be finding it difficult with my mother at the minute, and would he get a word in edgeways and a nice pastoral nod to us as family, knowing how awful my mother could be. 
But I heard story after story after story from all these people in their 60s. She was part of the, um, I don't know what they called the group for retired people in the church. And as they told their story, they talked about a woman I'd never really experienced or known. And as they were sharing, I thought, there is who my mother really is in Christ. And one day, I will get to spend an eternity with that woman. Restoration. And the last thing is exhortation, that God speaks to us, we speak to him, we prophesy through art and music and worship, and we retell this story, God with us, his passion, his restoration, his exaltation. Um, I've got no idea what the time is because I can't see the clock. Have I gone, I've gone way over time, haven't I? Um, would you like to stand? I want to pray for us. brothers and sisters. I need to tell you two stories before we pray. I could tell these stories over you, so I want you to... I'll tell you one story. In the midst of my healing and restoration that God was bringing me last summer, I was in Korea and I got to go to, um, they call it the Missionaries uh, Cemetery. Um, and these most amazing mission, missionaries have got a bad rap in history around the world because they go to places and they're very colonial and they make things very difficult. But the missionaries in Korea lived in poverty, died in their thousands, and helped rebuild Korea after the war there. Um, gave everything. And they are remembered. Uh, one of the reasons that Korea is such an amazing Christian country is because of what Chris, evangelical Christians did there and gave their lives to rebuild a country. See some of the photographs of a country bombed into oblivion and those first early missionaries on their knees praying in the mud and believing that God would bring restoration. And I went and saw these plaques and all these stories and photos of all these missionaries and they died, their children died. And then there was a a plaque up on one section of the wall from a, a girl called Ruby who in 1905, at 25 years old, went to Korea. As some of you will know, most missionaries used to pack all their stuff up in a coffin. They would take their possessions literally with them, knowing that they were going to die. When their family waved goodbye to them, they knew the chances were they would never see them again. And she sailed off to Korea, a very wealthy, prosperous family that she was from, who were Christians, who, I mean, released their daughter to death for the sake of the gospel. She died within a year in Korea. At her memorial service... Twelve young women went forward to take her place. But what got to me was something she'd written in her diary about her experience for the gospel in Korea. This one phrase, it said this. If I had a thousand lives to give, I would give them all to Korea. And as I read that, I found myself praying this. In the midst of what I'd been through, I had seriously considered giving up ministry. It might not surprise you. Talk to friends about it. I'll finish my PhD and go and get a nice teaching job in the countryside and have a less stressful life. And I found these words, very different words than the words that had come out when I was singing that worship song, Upside Down. If I had a thousand lives to give, I would give them all to church planting. 
I think there are some of you here, I know there are because we share these experiences, you have been hurt by the church. It's hurt you. really has. You have a lack of confidence in the church because of that hurt. But I hope you are getting the sense tonight that the cross of Jesus Christ is big enough for that. Big enough for any offense, any upset, any overlooking, any insecurity, any stupidity by another Christian who should have known better. It's bigger than that. And Christ wants to free you from that this evening so that you can be confident in his church again. Some of you have realized tonight that you have been measuring your life, leadership, ministry, and success by something other than the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the only measure for our lives. Not how big our churches are or how successful they are, but whether they are his and we are his. Some of us, I believe the Lord is calling to lay down our own vision and our own calling. Debbie Wright touched on it in the interview today. We need right now in our church movement a bunch of Christians who will say, Lord Jesus, I will serve somebody else for you. And some of you feel that call here. How dare we ask one another for that? We don't. He does. And if he asks you, it's not onerous. It's glorious. Some of us, as a church movement, we are getting older. Some of us have made huge sacrifices to plant our churches. And if I can be prophetic, let me speak these words with as much nuance and care as I can. The Lord Jesus will call many of us to lay down our churches and give them to others so that he can bring new life with others. And he has a new story for us. There's a death and resurrection that some of us need to go through with our churches. And then there are some of us that the Lord is really speaking to and touching and calling us to plant churches. Have you noticed that God is really doing something? I mean, this is one of those times, when we say God is really doing something, it's not that when we say he's doing something and hope he is. He really is doing something. He's multiplying us. He's calling us for vision and mission and commitment to his church.